0: Good morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning. If you are um, joining us for the first time, visiting or new, um, we're in the midst of a topical series. We don't do these very commonly. Our bread and, bro- bread and butter approach to growing uh, in Christ Jesus is just to move through books of the Bible, which we will be returning to that method in a couple of weeks. But we wanted to put things on hold. Um, and take some time to look at the supernatural aspects of the Christian life. And that includes things like prayer, which we've already covered, uh, and the spiritual gifts, um, gifts like prophecy, uh, the gift of tongues, miracles, and healing. All of that is to come. But for this week and next week, we're going to look at spiritual warfare. And I just want um, want to recognize this morning that generally... Wherever you're at, if we're going to talk about the devil and demons, if we're going to talk about heaven and hell and the spiritual realm and these things, generally, I'm going to assume you're starting in a place that is incorrect. And I hope you see that that's no disparaging remark on who you are or where you come from, um, but, but most of the thinking that we've done as Christians about these things are, are shaped by, by places that have very little to do with Christianity. If I can just illustrate, um, if I say the word devil and you try and picture it, where does that picture come from? Why, why horns and hooves? Why, why pitchforks and redskins? Almost all of that imagery begins with two old books, but not this one. Uh, specifically, Paradise Lost and Dante's Divine Comedy, including uh, Inferno. Uh, uh, those books took hold of our cultural mentality, and we built upon that an entire mythology of demon culture, of what things are like, um, and and that can make this topic inherently a challenge. Not because of what we know or don't know, but be, but because of what we don't know we don't know, or because of what we think we know. And... So, the mission this morning is relatively simple, actually. Um, We just want to recognize the reality that the Bible puts on display, communicates, articulates for us that there really is a spiritual enemy. There really is a spiritual realm, and not all of it is for your benefit. There really is an adversary, which is what the name devil means. Okay? What we want to do primarily is that recognize the reality of that, um, not be ignorant of, of that, um, be prepared for that. And then two, I want to kind of set some framework on, on where to begin and how to think about these things. Um, because, because I am convinced, again, that many of us have construed ways of thinking about this that go wrong. And so Where I'd like to begin this morning is not at the beginning, although it'd be appropriate to do so, right? If we were going to talk about an enemy, a spiritual enemy, we don't have to get very far into Genesis to find, you know, the serpent, to find temptation in the garden and the presence of this opposing being. Um, But I actually want to go to the end of the Bible. I want to look at the book of Revelation. And so if you've got a Bible this morning, open it up from the back to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at chapter 12. Maybe, maybe the only thing less accessible to us in terms of our levels of comfort than talking about demons and spirituality is the book of Revelation. <laughs> but the reason why I want to draw your attention here is because it provides, if you will, a, uh, a summary statement, a business card for the devil. And, and that's what I want to focus in on. But I, I want to give you the context. So the book Revelation comes from the Greek word apokalupsis, which is where we get our English word apocalypse. But all it really means is to unveil, to pull back the curtain. And if you read the book of Revelation, it's all about the unseen. It's all about what's going on behind the scenes, about spiritual realities. And that's especially true here in chapter 12, because most of what we see recorded here in chapter 12, you'll be able to connect the dots with what I would call earthly history. But the lens of this earthly history is different. In fact, I want you to notice that the imagery is not even set on what's happening on earth, but what's happening in heaven. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great... Red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. All right, let's pray. God, as we reflect on spiritual realities, it's it's helpful to remember that one of these realities is that you've promised your presence and your participation, that you are the one who illuminates your word and gives us understanding. You are the one who softens our heart and makes it receptive to the truth. And so we pray for that work of your spirit, Lord, that we would know the truth as it is proclaimed in your word, uh, and through that we would be prepared. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to connect the dots a little bit before we get into the text I want to look at. I want you to notice two things. First off, when we look in this passage, it starts with these signs in heaven, and it kind of reminds me of like one of the episodic pieces of Fantasia, the old Disney thing, you know, right? There's this big, dramatic, you can, you can imagine a symphonic background to this woman, and she's giving birth, and there's a dragon, and then there's a war in heaven and all of these things. But before we look at that, I want you to notice that when the dots are connected, there is a war in heaven, but there's also a war on earth. Did you notice that? Look again at, uh, at verse um, 11. Here it's talking about those who were accused day and night before our God, and it says verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. Now what's that talking about? That's talking about people who have died for following Jesus what we call martyrs. They just suddenly show up. There's this war in heaven, and then suddenly there's conquerors on earth. There's fighting in heaven, and there's martyrs on earth. There's the woman and the dragon in heaven, and on earth, there's just human beings going about their lives faithfully. But somehow these realities are connected. In fact, that's one of the most interesting things about the way the Bible portrays these two realms, what we would call the earthly realm and the spiritual realm. The world of angels and demons and the world of men and women. Okay? One of the things that's most interesting about the way the Bible portrays it is that not only are they coexisting, both real, but they impact one another. And, and not one directionally, but there's a relationship between these two things, a symbiotic nature between these two worlds. Now, another place where we see history is in the symbolism of this passage. What exactly is it talking about with this woman giving birth in heaven and a dragon waiting to devour the child? Well, really, this is just a retelling of the history of Israel. In fact, when it identifies the woman here as being clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her crown, uh, with, or on her head was a crown of 12 stars. All you have to do is go back to the book of Genesis, to the dreams of Joseph, and recognize that sun, moon, and stars, that's Israel, right? That's the dream that Joseph has. I dreamed that the sun and the moon and the stars were bowing down to me. And his dad hears that, and he interprets it rightly, and he says, are your mom and I and all of your brothers going to bow down to you, right? That is, if you will, the flag of Israel. That's the picture here. And as you know, if you've read the Old Testament, there was a long-standing anticipation for a child, for the one who was to come, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3.15, and between your seed and the seed of the serpent, I will put enmity, and the seed of the serpent will crush his heel, but he will bruise his head. That was the promise of salvation, the promise of redemption, and it was bound up in the coming of the birth of a child. And remember, when that promise is given, the serpent, his audience, he's sitting right there. And so the animosity we see in this passage is God seeking to fulfill the promise of redemption and the devil seeking to stop the promise. Here's an illustration of how this plays out in history. What is the first thing that happens at Jesus' birth? These wise men come and they're looking For the birth of the Messiah, for they've seen his star in the heavens. And so they go to King Herod, who rules over all Judea. And they say, we believe the Messiah has been born. Where is he to be born? And Herod turns to his counselors and he says, where is he supposed to be born? And they say, well, according to Micah, it's Bethlehem. And he he sets the wise men down and he says, look, go find the child. And when you do, come back and tell me so I might also worship him. But They're warned in a dream to go home another way, to not tell Herod. Herod feels threatened in his own rule by the supposed coming king of the Jews. And even when they don't return, he does a little bit of math and he kills every child in the area under the age of two. Now that's not just the obsessive jealousy and fear of a king. That's a d- demonic attempt. That's the dragon seeking to devour the child. And we could go back to the book of Esther. The destruction of the race of all Israel would have destroyed this promise. So many places we can see this warfare going on. And so this symbolism here is symbolic of the history of Israel. In fact, just so you know where I'm coming from, look at what it says about this woman in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's Jesus. Okay. And so, what I want you to notice here is, again, there is this spiritual reality. And then there's the physical reality. We can just walk through the history of Israel. We can tell the stories that came from here. They went to here. King David, King Solomon kicked into Babylon, returned to the land under Nehemiah. We can tell that whole story, and we can trace it all the way from the promise in Genesis 3.15 to the birth of a baby in Luke chapter 2. We can do that. But here in Revelation, the curtain is pulled back, and we see that there's also a spiritual component. In fact, look again at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down. Interpretive question. When does this happen? I would suggest to you in the context, this happens at the resurrection of Christ. The child has come, the child ascends to heaven and somehow there's a relationship between that reality, Jesus defeats death on earth and Satan is defeated in heaven and kicked out. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, you find, uh, if you will, the devil in the presence of God. Think of the book of Job. Job opens, and the devil walks into the courtroom of God, and God says, Hey, devil, where have you been? He says, Well, I've been wandering the earth. And he says, Have you thought about Job? Right? He's right there. He's in the room. You know, it's not like Paradise Lost, where he's in the city of pandemonium. He's present until here. You see, Colossians tells us uh, in chapter 2 that in the cross of Christ, Jesus triumphed over all of the powers and principalities and made a public spectacle of them. There's a sense where Jesus was enthroned in his resurrection and the authority, therefore, of the devil or the dragon here with his seven diadems is challenged and to some degree over. That's what's going on in this passage. That's what's being talked about here. But what I want to draw your attention to, because that's really all just context, is the character of this enemy as displayed again in verse uh, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That's what happened. But then there's an aside here that describes the great dragon. Who is the great dragon? And this is what it says. That ancient serpent, clearly a reference to Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan. One of those words means adversary, the other means accuser. Okay, The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And now I, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, notice this, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser Again, a play there on the name Satan. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that we see three primary traits or characteristics. If we want to ask, what are the primary weapons of our enemy? We see them right here, and they're very simple. First, as it says in the middle, who deceives the whole world? We see the devil as deceiver. As It says in John chapter 8, the devil is a liar. And when he lies, he lies out of his character, for he is the father of all lies. So he's a deceiver. Here he's uh, recognized as the serpent, the ancient serpent. Going back to Genesis 3, he is a tempter. And then lastly, we see him as the accuser, the accuser of the brethren, in fact, one of the most common names for the devil, Satan, It's just that, the accuser. It's actually the Satan, the accuser, when we find it in the Old Testament. Now, I'm harping on these. I'm drawing these out. I'm focusing on these this morning because here is the other problem. I mentioned earlier that culturally, it doesn't really matter if you come out on the skeptical side, of there is no spiritual realm, or if you come out on the superstitious side where you see everything as being overly empowered uh, and filled with demons and angels and these types of things. I don't care what you thought of touched by an angel. It doesn't really matter where you are on the spectrum, okay? But there's another problem. The problem is, in the church, there's a need to try and own a significant amount of the scriptures that recognizes this spiritual reality. Will you just pause with me and take a mental survey? We find angels in Genesis. We find them throughout the history of Israel. We find them active In the prophets. We find them in the gospels as well as demons. We find them referenced in the epistles. You cannot escape that the Bible believes and promotes a spiritual realm of both benevolent and antagonistic forces. It's there. And so the problem is, in the church trying to deal with that, we haven't always dealt well with that. And this is the concern I have. There are those who have rejected the ordinary reality of our spiritual adversary because they feel they must reject the extraordinary. In other words, demon possession is just a holdout from an ancient mindset that didn't understand mental illness. Right? Have you heard this before? Okay. Or, or this is just something that happened then, but it no longer happens now. Okay. And the problem is the next step in that is that you throw out the ordinary. And I'll come back to this. But the other approach we see, and if you come from a more Pentecostal background or you've seen these things, there are those who leap over the ordinary and make ordinary the extraordinary. And so now, demon possession is something that's happening all the time in every person, and heavy demonic oppression is the primary problem in the Christian life. And they both make the same mistake, even though they do it from different angles. They neglect what I'm calling this morning ordinary spiritual warfare what I would suggest to you is the biblical approach is to recognize and address regularly and consistently as part of your day, daily life, the ordinary spiritual warfare, as well as be open to the extraordinary when you encounter it. Okay. That is what I would suggest is a balanced and biblical view. Jesus casts out demons, but he also talks about the ordinary spiritual warfare quite a lot. Paul apparently casts out demons, but he spends a lot more time, instead of talking about our exorcism technique, warning us against these three things that I've mentioned here. And I would suggest to you that there is no big demonic power. There is no need to cast out demons except through these three portals. The foundation, the beginning The place where satanic influence begins, way before it gets to any form of oppression or something that would demand significant exorcism with deception, temptation, and accusation. Okay. So let's take a look at them in turn. Let's return to the passage and let's deal with the first one here and the great dragon who was thrown down that ancient serpent when we go back to Adam and Eve life is relatively simple they're in a garden the garden is fully cultivated, they have one another God is walking in their midst in the cool of the day, they have the presence of God, and they have a simple and single command, you can eat of all of the trees of the garden, but this tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you're not to eat of, and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die now Many of you know that just that command can stir up and evoke in you a desire to break it, right? We almost always have this proclivity, this autonomous bent that says, oh yeah, or the inquisitive arrogance to say, why not? What if I want it right? Why do we find that in ourselves? Because we live past Genesis 3, but Adam and Eve didn't have that. We cannot say that Adam and Eve were righteous. They need to obey to be righteous, but they were innocent. right? In fact, that seems to be part of the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, isn't it? That there was an experiential encounter they had choosing evil over good that happens there uniquely. But you look at your life, and even if you make your own list, set the Bible aside for a second make your own list of right and wrong good and bad and you find in yourself a desire to do bad to not live up to your own standards it's hard to be good it wasn't necessarily like that with Adam and Eve but what comes next an external influence the serpent comes to Eve and says "Hey, that tree why didn't you eat that tree Right? He begins to ask questions. And then he denies the truth of what God said and says, no, you won't die. God's actually afraid because he knows that if you eat that tree, you will become like him. Right? Deception will come back. to But he operates as an instigator, as, uh, um, as a pilot-like. Okay? And his temptation finds ground. Right? Adam is no superman. Eve is no superwoman who can just stand there and, you know, the bullets of temptation just bounce off of them. But it's still external. But nonetheless, his operation, his modus operandi, his M.O., is to get them to disobey God. That's temptation. And the truth is, it's not very hard to read the story and realize that temptation falls a little flat. Like, amazingly... By the end of the conversation, Eve feels like she must have this fruit and that she needs to eat it, but she's surrounded by an orchard, a, a veritable garden, a very literal garden of Eden, of options and possibilities, and she's convinced that God is withholding good from her, right? It's a tremendously theological temptation. It's not just, you know, I bet that fruit tastes better than anything else in the garden. It's, is God really good? Does he really have your best interest in mind? And I know that you, like me, oftentimes when we engage with our desires, we don't really think about the desires that underlie our desires. We think, I want this. But we very rarely stop and go, what is it that I really want that drives me towards that? But the devil works at that underneath level. And the truth is, since Adam and Eve, because we've experienced what the Bible uh, describes as a fall, right? And so the world that we encounter is broken. Our bodies are broken. Our, our, our spiritual selves, our souls are broken. And so now, in temptation, the devil actually has a partner, which the Bible labels our flesh. Okay? In other words, he's got an inside man. And that increases the power and reality of temptation in a way that Adam and Eve didn't experience. But here's what I want to point out to you this morning. If this is who the devil is, not just who he was in the garden, but who he is all the way here at the end of Revelation, who he's been throughout all of history, if he is indeed the leader and commander of powers and principalities and an entire force that follows his ways then that means temptation as you experience it is not just about you. That's really significant. Now, if it was just about us, that would probably be sufficiently difficult. Self-control is a challenge for most human beings, and usually we're selective on self-control. And so we can be very rigid in this one area that's important to us and completely overindulge in this other one justify and excuse ourselves along the way. My suggestion to you this morning is that you cannot blame all of that on the devil. In fact, the devil made me do it is in Genesis 3, it doesn't work. right? That's what the woman says. The serpent, he... No, 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 no. We make our own choices. We have our own will. But, what if the struggle that you experience with temptation is more than just hormones and appetite? That suggests that if you have a spiritual enemy that's involved, you have to have a spiritual attack plan. It suggests that you need more than just the flesh to fight the flesh, which is hard enough in and of itself. Read Romans chapter 7. So we see here Satan as tempter. But we also see him as deceiver. Here he's labeled as the deceiver of the whole world. In John, like I said in chapter 8, he's the father of lies. Deception is a primary tool of the devil. And again, we see it back in Genesis chapter 3. As soon as the serpent says, you shall not surely die, he exposes himself as a liar. But when it says here, who deceives the whole world, we have a choice to make. It's it's a normal grammatical choice. We make it all the time. Should we hear that the whole world as individually but completely packaged? Deceives each and every person selectively in the whole world? Or is it talking about a greater than the sum of its part community deceives the whole world? Do you understand the difference between those two things? They're obviously related. But what if the deception it's talking about here isn't Merely individualistic. What if it's not about just lies whispered into your heart in the middle of the night, although that could be true? What if it's bigger than that? Biblically, it absolutely is. In the same way that the devil as serpent is a tempter, and that temptation has help in what we call the flesh, the devil as deceiver has help in what we call the world. And just like the Bible has no problem with you being flesh and blood, the Bible has no problem with the world or humanity as a whole, for God so loved the world, right? But John goes on in a later letter to say, don't love the world. What does he mean? He is talking about the systems of the world, the things that we create, the powers and principalities, the institutions that are diametrically opposed by God. And the thing about institutions is they become bigger than a collection of individuals. Listen, here's how it's put in 2 Corinthians. I want you to notice that the language of this passage is clearly warfare language. And this is what Paul says. says in chapter 10 verse 3 for though we walk ac- walk in the flesh we are not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to what? to destroy strongholds okay. what I would suggest to you and we'll see this in just a second is these strongholds are collective lies they're holdouts against the truth of the reality of God, of the faithfulness of God, of the justice of God, of the centrality of God. In other words, these strongholds, as well as the powers and principalities mentioned in Colossians and Ephesians, are not just other religions, but all ideologies that are man-made and stand against the reality of Christ as King. One of the ways that you can think about strongholds or powers and principalities, to put it in modern English, is to use the word ism. Isms are not ideas that begin with Marx and Lenin or Lincoln and um, uh, Jefferson. They're more than that. And although they may have truth in them, they often become strongholds. They become comprehensive Ideologies that explain all of life and seek to satisfy human beings completely in a self-contained way. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about socialism or capitalism, republican, republicanism or democratism. You see, this is one of the problems. A lot of Christians get this idea that the devil is working you know, behind the scenes in big things, but only for that side. And so one political party becomes the party of the devil. Boy, oh boy. But here he says they are strongholds, okay? And then I want you to notice how he goes on. What is a stronghold? Verse 5, we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is a stronghold? It clearly has to do with ideas. Do you see that? Knowledge, thoughts, wisdom, Arguments, lofty opinions, these are the words he uses to describe a stronghold. They are ideologies. What I'm suggesting to you is although, yes, just like we saw in The Tempter, if there is a spiritual reality, that means that not all the voices you hear are your own. And that can be an incredibly important thing to realize but also 1 John it puts it this way, it says the whole world is under the power of the evil one mm. one of the things we can forget as Christians is that the church operates in hostile territory and again that's not a condemnation on human beings that God loves but it is a recognition that human beings together always promote the Babel approach let's come together and build a tower against god let's come together right this is this is more than just human beings building a building it's more than just people fleeing persecution and starting a nation it's more than just presenting a new way of going about economics it is always more because there's someone in the shadows you know a small little man behind the curtains posing as the grave and marvelous Wizard of Oz. Deception is not a danger for the gullible. It's a danger for humans. It is a constant and regular part of life. And so those strongholds that we read about there don't just exist in your opposing political party or in, you know, the employees that seem to be pushing against the new agenda, or in your crazy, uh, you know, mother-in-law, or these types of things. They exist in you. And more importantly, they exist in us, collectively, holistically. Have you ever had that experience where you realize that something you've always assumed and everybody else around you assumes has no basis as truth whatsoever? Have you ever had those epiphanies where the whole thing kind of crumbles and you go, why was this so convincing? The truth is, I've been studying the Bible for about 15 years, and because of that, I've had a lot of these experiences. Not because the Bible directly addresses these things, but it causes you to ask questions and you go, wait, why did we think this other thing? And you start to look under the surface and you go, oh, I assumed there was a whole bunch of evidence for this, but we just collectively agreed that this was true. <laughs> We do that all the time. And then we defend those truths to the death as being ultimate and complete. And you go, but are they? Here's the scariest thing about deception. It's so easy to see in others. It's so difficult to see in ourselves. In fact, that's so true that the Bible in the New Testament spends a lot of time telling us as Christians to exhort and encourage one another, to speak the truth to one another, uh, because we cannot deal with our own deceptive hearts on our own we need one of them if you read through the book of acts you will see temptation and you will see deception you will see both of these things as as the devil tries to lead the church astray if you read through church history you will look at decisions and you'll go why in the world Would they justify that in the name of Jesus Christ? It's because there's a battle going on. And in a lot of places, it's a battle of ideas. First we saw it's a battle of desires. Now we see it's a battle of ideas. Now, at this point, I need to confess frustratingly that most of what we're going to do to answer the question, what do we do about it, has to wait till next week. And that's not something I generally like to do. A whole lot can happen in six days. And I don't know how many of you I scared off this morning. <laughs> but 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 we will return to that next next week. But all I want to focus on this morning is that the the first way that you go about fighting a war is to recognize that it's happening. Mm, amen. Right? Just just that sense of awareness, which again is not something you can do on your own. It's something you have to ask God for your help with. This is a big and expansive and and kind of specific illustration. But there's an occasion where all of the king's men have surrounded God's prophet. His house is surrounded by armies. The king's trying to flex his physical strength and go, look, quit prophesying against me, man. And the prophet's just going about his business. He's just cleaning his house, doing normal things, and the servant's like, have you looked outside? He's like, yeah, I looked outside. He's like, but we're surrounded by armies. And he says, God, please open my servant's heart so he can see. And the servant looks out, and he sees that that army is surrounded by another army on both sides of fully armed angels. That's spiritual reality. And like I said, that's kind of an extreme illustration. Right now, I would settle for what Paul calls circumspect. Which, by the way, is the first word I taught my firstborn son. <laughs> because kids are clumsy, and they don't pay attention to what's going on them. And that's what circumspectly means. Circumspectly means to walk with eyes open. Okay. That's the only goal this morning, is to walk with eyes open. Okay. But we need to look at the devil in one more component. And I want you to notice that just as those first two fit together, deception and temptation work together, And one of the ways that temptation is self-fueling is we build these bigger authority structures that affirm ways of living for an entire culture to say this is good and healthy and true. And that normalizes and simplifies the temptation. But the last one here is the accuser. And if you want a good illustration of this, a good picture of how it works, it works on two levels. And one you can see, again, in the book of Job. Job is having a bad day, right? In fact, he has a collection of them. His kids die as their tent collapses and kills them all. His cattle is stolen and destroyed. His health goes away. He loses everything. And his friends come and they say, Job, the reason is because you're a bad guy and God is punishing you. But we, if you read the book of Job and read the first two chapters, know that's not what's going on. What's actually going on is a spiritual demonstration that Job knows nothing about. But what is the devil doing in those two chapters? Effectively, he comes to God and he questions Job's character as a way to question God's goodness. He says, you know what, the only reason that Job serves you is not because you're good, and it's not because he loves you, but it's because you've been so good to Job. You've blessed him abundantly, but if you take all that, he'll curse your name instantly. And he's wrong. And it can bother us that all of that crappy stuff happens to Job because God says, well, I'll show you. That's not really a fun idea. Would you like to be cast in the role of Job in your life and be subject to the whims of the devil to make a point? But that's really what's going on there. But what is the devil's role there? He is the accuser. That's how he's entitled. His job is to point to and to criticize, to call out, to condemn. And as we saw in this passage, he no longer has access. Whereas we have access to the throne room of God, the devil no longer does. There's another layer of accus- accusation, isn't there? And it happens right here. It happens in our hearts. And this is what makes the devil so twisted. There's a lot of portrayals of the devil that I'm really fond of. Uh, I love the the devil in Marguerite. Uh, I love C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, specifically Paralangra. There's a lot of good portrayals. I love the movie Constantine. I'm kind of a heretic like that. And I love how the devil is just this smiley, old, white-haired man with tar dripping from his feet. There's a lot of good ones out there. But in Paralandra, in C.S. Lewis's Paralandra, his portrayal of the devil is so good because it's so mundane. There's a part where Ransom, the main character, he's trying to stay awake to stop, effectively, the Garden of Eden failure happening again, but on Venus. Okay, I know it's a little science fiction. It's a little nerdy and there's this demon-possessed guy who's playing the tempter's role. And so he's trying to be vigilant and stay awake, but this demon-possessed guy never sleeps. And so they're sitting there, the woman's far away, he's, he's falling asleep, and he hears, he hears Watson, or, uh, Winston, the guy next to him who's devil-possessed, say, Ransom, Ransom. And he wakes up and he says, What? He says, Never mind. And then he starts up again, Ransom, 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 What?! Never mind. He just does it all day long. In another part, he comes and he finds a trail of these little you know, Venus-born, frog-like creatures that have had their skin peeled back, one by, a, uh, one by one and are just crawling around the ground. It's just vindictive and cruel. That's all it is. It's just a bundle of wrath. Here is that vindictive and cruel reality. The devil deceives us and tempts us. And then he blames us for it. Then he accuses us of it. He seeks to lead us to other things, and therefore seeks to get us to disobey God, and then he, he calls out like the little brother who just set a trap for his older brother. Mom! Right? Accusation. Condemnation. And these things cycle, don't they? We're discovering today that one of the primary reasons That people cultivate addictive behavior is because they get caught in a loop of shame and guilt that leads to more exposure to the behavior. Have you seen these studies? Condemnation fuels disobedience. And there's an irony there because we can feel convicted about what we've done and then we start to have new deceptions that are like, well, that's too far so you might as well give them a guilt. Or, you can never change, this is just who you are. Or, it's really about what they did, right? Condemnation doesn't just happen in our hearts, it happens through our hearts of other people. So you're justified in your behavior. And all you have to do is look over the last year, if, you're, if you've if you been a part of the Christian church in America, look over the last year and recognize the voice of the devil in the pews. Because condemnation has been flying And it's been flying to defend those trumped-up ideologies the Bible calls stronghold and not the truth. I could have easily added to this list division. The devil's really fond of division. But he gets there through these means. And he's doing it right now. But here's the thing about accusation. Again, we tend to mistake that voice for our own. Or we tend to mistake it for the voice of God. You see, I told you there's a difference. Access to heaven, no longer access to heaven. And that's what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. It says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The accusations no longer stick. Not because you are fully and completely transformed, but that's still to come. But because you are wrapped in the robes of Jesus' righteousness. And you are seen before God as acceptable and entirely because your sins are completely forgiven. If you want to know the way that you combat condemnation, you do it with forgiveness. And until the blood of Christ was shed and his death became our death in our place, forgiveness was a promise whereas now it is readily available and fulfilled. It's not just you will be forgiven. In Jesus Christ you are. That's why there is no condemnation. Not because you're finally getting it right, not because your vows and promises are really going to work out this time, but because Jesus paid the entire cost, and in doing so, he triumphed over the accuser. He intercedes both the adversary and the accuser, that's courtroom language, right? And so in First John it says this. I decided I wanted to read it. 1st John I'll probably pick up in chapter 2 but we might grab, we might grab the end of chapter 1 there. Yeah, let's pick up in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now listen to chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate, no longer an adversary in God's presence, but now an advocate, one who speaks on our behalf, one who steps in and intercedes. In fact, he's more than that. Verse 2 He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he doesn't just step in and present a good argument, he presents himself. He is the propitiation. He says, I paid for that. I endured all of your wrath on behalf of this sin. To condemn them again would be double jeopardy. That they, They're justified. Their sin has been paid for. It's completed. And so what do you do when you feel condemnation? You go to the cross. And you don't just go seeking forgiveness. You also go standing on it. In fact, this is a big deal of what we'll see next week. Because deception is so involved in temptation and accusation, the primary way we fight the devil is with the truth. It's not with hand gestures and crucifixes. It's not with sage and incense. It's by proclaiming the accomplished work of Jesus Christ and applying it again and again and again to our own lives. And again... shouldn't really surprise us because Jesus explained salvation in the language of a kingdom and a conqueror. When we proclaim the kingdom we engage in warfare. When we counter the strongholds by taking down every lofty opinion and taking every thought captive to Christ we engage in spiritual warfare. When we resist condemning accusations of the devil and also the way that he decries the character of God and says God could no longer love you God doesn't have your best interest in heart you're on your own, you have to look for yourself We can point to the cross of Christ and see the truth and the reality of who God is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us we didn't send Jesus on our behalf, God sent Jesus to come and rescue us there is the possibility and the reality of that extraordinary aspects of spiritual warfare. There is the possibility for these things to be long-standing and oppressive, entrenched, even what we would call demon possession, although I think we should be careful with that word since the Bible never uses it. Those realities exist, but they exist through these means and they're fought in the same way. They're dealt with in the same way. There's a reason why the Bible doesn't come with a manual of how to do an exorcism, and it's not because they don't happen. It's because it's already given you everything you need for life and godliness. You just proclaim the same truths and the same gospel and the same Jesus as Lord who triumphed over all the powers and principalities. When things do get more intricate, When they do get more involved, if you get into these corners where techniques get very specific in these types of things, I get nervous. And the main reason is because the devil's a deceiver. And we're totally capable of just playing into some play-acting version of spiritual warfare. There's nothing the devil would love more than for us to over-recognize his influences, think that he's operating in places that he's not. There's nothing that he would love more than to keep us busy working on all of these things that don't work while we avoid the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. But again, I want to affirm for you this morning the devil is real. Jesus took his reality seriously. But the salvation that came in Christ, it's not just about your flesh and blood. It's not just about your sins and forgiveness. It's not just about receiving the Holy Spirit. It's also about conquering the enemy that seeks to destroy you. It's also about triumphing over the powers that no longer have power over you. You have been transferred, it says in Colossians, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let's pray. Father, I think, honestly, one of the reasons why we haven't engaged very deeply with this topic is um, is, is fear. But just, just the simple fear that it's it's safer and easier to know less. And I actually think, Lord, that there is a tendency for obsession in these categories and, and even, even craziness that, that validates that concern. Unless we keep... The self-control and level-headedness of Scripture that recognizes these things but does not fear them, that is prepared for these things in the same way that we're prepared for all these things, that recognizes um, that the devil is against us but that he has been defeated. I pray, God, that you would produce in this church, in each and every individual, Um, this level-headedness, beginning with eyes open to recognize lies and condemnation and temptation and to be able to discern um, when, when other voices are at play and when to engage as Jesus did as he was tempted in the wilderness by saying, It is written. Turning to the scriptures and standing on the truth and proclaiming who you are and who Christ is and what he's done who we are in Christ. Immune. And I pray, God, that you would also give us uh, give us the means to um, wage the warfare of the church for the sake, not just of all the individuals that make up this nation or this city or this neighborhood, Lord, um, but for the culture as a whole, that we would um, stand against the powers and principalities and that we wouldn't join in, in the war of, of deposed kings fighting for authority but we would proclaim that Jesus is Lord you taught us to pray at the very end of your prayer Lord lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil and some translations rightly recognize that it should be deliver us from the evil one God we just want to confess that need this morning we need to be strengthened we need to be led We need to be instructed. We need your help to overcome. But we also know in the blood of Christ we are more than conquerors. So I pray, God, that you would help us to engage with that and to experience that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's worship.